Social media has really turned everyone into a global citizen. You can be absolutely anywhere and still have a pretty good crack at pursuing your passion and successfully growing it. The real estate agent finally calls me and he's like, your business plan didn't get through because you have no experience and it's too much of a risk for them. Hello, you're listening to Ducks on the Pond with me, Kirsten DeProse. And I'm Jackie Elliott. This episode is sponsored by Sarah and Grace from Peds Education, a child farm safety training and first aid business. And we'll meet co-founder Sarah Duncanson at the end of this podcast. But for this episode, we speak to two rural women who are absolute business success stories overseas. No dream is too big, Kirsten. Indeed. And as we just heard from Jess Pryles at the very start, social media has opened up the world to us. So Jess, very much through the power of social media and business acumen, has made it really big in the US. Like she's an influencer now. And we'll meet Rose Hood, formerly Rose Mann from Victoria's Western District, who now has several cafes called Farm Girl in the UK. But first, here's Jess Pryles, who has an even cooler name that she goes by. I'm an Aussie living in Austin, Texas. My name is Jess Pryles. People call me the hardcore carnivore because that's the name of my business. We sell seasonings and tools and gear for grilling enthusiasts. But my story is really, I grew up in Melbourne and I'm someone who always loved eating meat, didn't really know how to cook it, definitely was not from a rural ag background and very disconnected from it. and. Being a tourist in Texas a few years ago, many years ago now, over a decade, I tried my first taste of Texas barbecue, became obsessed with it, tried to buy a brisket back in my butcher in Australia and did not understand why it looked so different to the ones in Texas. And that sort of led me down a complete career change as I was trying to figure out why is it this, can't it be the same thing if it has the same name? And now here we are over a decade later and I fly all over the world t- teaching people how to cook meat and and prepare it, especially with light fire cooking. And I'm finishing off a meat science graduate course at Iowa State University. And I really just truly found my passion. And and here we are chatting. Oh, Jackie, I can really relate to Jess with all of that lack of ag knowledge, but even down to not knowing what kind of cuts of meat there are and how to cook it. You know, I honestly used to think I didn't like steak because my mum basically really overcooked it. I only ever had it well done, but now I'm very much a medium rare girl. It's opened up a new world to me. (laughs) I have to laugh because I'm actually more of a medium to well kind of person. Even me coming off a beef farm, you know, I can stand at the supermarket aisle going, oh, what am I going to select? Because we don't often kill our own beasts. We usually have our own lamb. Yeah, we we do actually kill our own. So we, we have a, a selection of cuts and it's good to know what you're about to cook because when you're facing neck or some weird random part, it's best to know how to cook that. Like you can't just pop that on the barbecue and have success. <laughs> they don't understand that, you know, if you're cutting a T-bone, then you can't have an eye fillet because yep. it's, it's either or. And so... Even that education on what to ask for and how it's all put together just, I think, prevents a lot of people from getting access to what they want. You have to understand, Jackie, like when you grow up not connected to ag at all, it's news that there are dairy cattle and beef cattle and that it's not just one for all the same thing, you know. So, so much stuff that you guys 
or not you guys, but that people certainly in agriculture that is obviously inherently connected to being rural and just absolutely know and understand that urban kids just aren't exposed to. Yeah, and I agree with that. We had someone and they were even like grew up on a farm but didn't realise sheep were born with tails because she'd only ever seen they sheep that had been <laughs> like <laughs> being marked. But I also I wanted to say, and I will say, it, the funniest thing to me is I've travelled to more places in rural Australia through being involved in barbecue than I ever would have otherwise and meat because obviously, you know, the the producers and the farmers and the processing plants or abattoirs are usually rural. And, and I've actually nearly seen more of rural Australia since I moved to the US because I get to go <laughs> back and go to fun events and it's just been brilliant. So in regards to the business, there's sort of two facets to my business. One is we have the business called Hardcore Carnival, which is a fully-fledged business of its own. It is sold all over Australia. We've got distributors in Europe, the UK, Canada, Mexico, all over. And that is the seasonings and the gear. And there are people who buy Hardcore Carnival and have no idea who I am, and that's fine. And there are people who do. We have a whole team who works on that because it's a you know, the whole shipping, receiving, the ordering forecasts. It's I love coming up and I still come up with the products, but all the other stuff like bubble wrapping and packing <laughs> is not my forte. But I did, you know, I, I started that myself back in the day. I was packing stuff in my garage, but we've certainly grown to our own warehouse now. But then the other side of my business is the stuff that I do under my name. And those are things like I just came back from California yesterday and I did a grilling and butchery demo for the California Beef Council. And then I went and did a demo for Kingsford Charcoal headquarters because they have new staff all the time and they want them to learn all about grilling and how the product's used. And, you know, then I stopped by UC Davis because they have an animal science research feedlot and kind of check that out. So I do stuff like that and I do, I have a cookbook, so I do recipe testing and I create recipes for brands that I work with and myself. I like to make videos. You'll see a lot of videos online, meat myth busting, recipe videos, stuff like that. And that's that's full time in itself. So I spend a lot of time concentrating on all of those meat-based things and finishing school as well. I think the interesting thing, when I, I left Australia in 2015, and at that time, on the one hand, doesn't feel like that long ago and also feels like a lifetime ago. But the idea behind it, I mean, in, in one way, yes, I'd fallen in love with Texas and just really wanted to be over here. But more so the, the thought was, look, Australia is a very small pond and if I'm going to have a real crack at it, I need to head over there. But the reality of the current climate with the way that social media has really turned everyone into a global citizen is that you can be absolutely anywhere and still have a pretty good crack at pursuing your passion and successfully growing it without having to move, which I think is going to be really significant for rural-based people. The other thing, you know, particularly in in ag for people who are raising their own animals and maybe have small farms, small ranch, the way that they have access to directly market to customers now, whereas before they didn't have a choice and you'd have to just sell it into your local plant, has also empowered people in in a wonderful way. It's funny because I left thinking, you know, oh, here we go. The world's really opening up because I'm in America now. And some of the biggest social media influencers out there are Australian, still based in Australia. 
Yeah. You know, Australia's not a big country comparatively, population-wise. It just goes to show you that the fruit is out there for you to pick it. I think what's helped me more than anything is just a determination and a drive. But I think that that's probably the attribute that's helped me the most. I don't want to say not taking no for an answer, but persistence and hard work, I think, really does pay off. You know, I'm 42. Well, I had to think about that for a second. I'm 42 and I really didn't figure things out till I was in my 30s. So if there's anyone sort of younger out there, I think it's also important to not necessarily pressure yourself. If someone had said to me in my 20s, find what you're passionate about, like it doesn't always come instantly. So be patient with yourself and just always be open to sort of learning, trying new opportunities and seeing what's a good fit for you and being okay if it's not a good fit as well. I just turned 30 like a week and a bit ago and I probably reflected on, you know, the last 10 years. I was like, gosh, if I had have been doing what I do now, which is a lot with Rural Women's Day, I've dropped back in work part-time I've got a bit more flexibility to help on mum and dad's farm. But if I, I think if I had have done, knew all this, what I know now, 10 years ago, I probably would have been a lot happier person. Like I was really struggling personally and, you know, it was like stressful for me. It was depressing. I had anxiety about things because I just, I didn't really feel like I had my place. I'm now talking to women who are in their 30s or even their 40s, even older and they're like, your 30s are your best years. Yeah. And then they're like, but even my 40s are fantastic. I think we're moving further and further away from the idea that you're supposed to know what you want to do when you finish high school. Yeah. You know, it's just not it's just not r- realistic for a lot of people. You know, we nearly used to poo-poo kids that dropped out at 16, 17 to go to TAFE or to become a Sparky. But like, that was a brilliant move for them. There are people who are amazing at being tradesmen and why should they stay in school another year if they can go off and do that and live their best life and really enjoy it? By the same token, there are people like me that are just late starters. It just takes us a little while to figure out what works for us. So I think it's a really important message to not sort of suffer with anxiety or worry about what you're going to do. You find your path eventually. I was only age 16. And then I actually dropped out of school and went to ag college. And in those two years, I then completed a diploma of agriculture, graduated, and then went straight into full-time work at age 18. Definitely. And just just be easy on yourself, you know. I wouldn't say sit at home all day eating Tim Tams and just waiting for it to come to you. You still have to go out and try things to figure out what you want, but just, you know, don't punish yourself if it doesn't happen immediately. I love this advice from both of you, actually. The idea that we're meant to know what we want to be by the time we're 17 is ridiculous because you haven't even seen the world. I really think it's a bit of a hangover from times gone by when we used to just like the school system was just about pumping kids out to be workers in a job or in a system. And I don't think we're really designed, especially rural women, to maybe follow one path. So I think now is a great time to bring in Rosewood. She has guts. She started pursuing her business dreams at the age of 22 in London, of all places. I know. Like 22-year-old me could not have done that here in Australia, let alone in another country. I mean, I was living paycheck to paycheck trying to pay off my car, right? (laughs) I couldn't even drive Jackie at 22. So my name is Rose Hood now. I got married last year and it formerly was Rose Mann. I grew up in the Western District of Victoria on farm life, which was wonderful. Such a very happy childhood with amazing memories. 
I have four other siblings. One of my younger brother lives in Cambodia and the rest are all in the farms in Victoria. So I moved to London 13 years ago and I started working in fashion marketing and, you know, just being in London. I was meant to be here for three months and, of course, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the boy, you know, cliche, same story. <laughs> and here I am 13 years later. But I moved to Notting Hill in London, which is the most amazing sort of suburb. And I was getting quite frustrated walking around the streets with the lack of fresh food. And this is years and years ago. Now there's incredible places everywhere. You know, going to, I went to university in Melbourne where on every single street there's about six different cafes with incredible food, incredible coffee. People just get it. It's just easy. I also did a trip to LA and New York with my my now husband. And even there, you know, the offering was just better than London. I saw it's bizarre because also, you know, we're in England. We've got farmers around the corner. So me being stubborn old me went, fine, I'm going to do it myself. I just got sick of the fashion industry and I had this, like, you know, when you get obsessed with something, you can't stop thinking about it. So I would sort of sit there in my days off writing business plans, ideas, talking to Anthony, my husband, who's now my business partner. But back then he was just, you know, my boyfriend and saying, I'm going to own a cafe. I'm going to own a cafe. And he was like, yeah, 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 sure, 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 whatever. And I would say to my family, you know, oh, I think I'm going to open a cafe. And they're all sort of like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> and but I was so determined. And there's this road in Notting Hill. Anyway, I was looking for cafe spaces that were available while I was having my crazy, I've got to open a cafe. And there was a cafe in the courtyard that I'd been obsessing over and it was up for rent. So, you know, I went in and saw the sign, called the real estate agent and he said, well, it's actually still, it's still operating. So why don't you go and have a look and, you know, go and go and have a coffee there. So I did, I went and sat and wrote my business plan in there and it was like this miserable day. The chef there was like in the worst mood. The place was such a grub, like it hadn't been sort of touched or cleaned for years. Worst coffee I've ever had in my life, honestly. Sort of defrosted cake in the fridge, you know. So there I am writing my business plan and then I send it to the real estate agent. He sends it to the landlords. And, you know, I didn't hear back for weeks. I'm calling them, calling them, and then the real estate agent finally calls me and he's like, well, you know, no, your, your business plan didn't get through because you have no experience and... It's too much of a risk for them. I didn't even have a CV that had anything about food and beverage other than a few catering jobs in Melbourne, you know. So I was like really upset by this. And again, me being stubborn, just went back. I went. I walked. I remember the day I walked straight back and I went upstairs into the office of the landlords and I just literally knocked on the door. And of course, in England, that's you just don't do that. Like, you know, you have to have an appointment or you have to write an email or, you know, blah, blah. Went in and they were so sort of taken aback. And I said, can I, can you just tell me why you didn't choose me? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find a space. So I'll need to know what to, how to amend my business plan or whatever. And the girl was so sweet. The office girl, she just goes, well, it, it was too big a risk. You have no experience. There's nothing in your business plan that says where the money, you know, if you're having a guarantee from someone, you know, all these things that I had missed. So I went back and I said to my boyfriend, Anthony, can you help me? And he sat, sat with me up all night and we rewrote the business plan and just sort of made it sound much better. And I took it back to the landlords of this place because I was like, I have to have that place. Anyway, they were laughing. So they're like, okay. So they looked at it again and then they were like, right, okay, we'll give you an interview with all of their trustees because it's a church that own it. Yeah. And so there's like 12 trustees. And so I got this interview and it was so terrifying. I had to present this business plan to them. I had 
no idea what I was talking about. My numbers were like crazy. I mean, I'm just like, I, it's hilarious. I look back at the numbers that I put in my original forecasts and like the first year, I think we tripled them, you know, I mean, hysterical. Anyway, I think they just liked the story of me being from a farm. I was lucky enough that my father very, very kindly wrote me a letter to say he would guarantee, you know, the building works and everything else. And if anything went wrong, he would guarantee it. So that was a little bit of a safety net. But I think they genuinely just liked the idea of me being on my own, you know, because they had other business plans come through them, which were like these big franchises. There was a burger place. There was a chocolatier. Like there was a pizza house. Anyway, so they took a big risk and we opened our first one and it took it about six months to get off the ground. It was a real struggle because we had no idea what we were doing. I was serving coffee and food and running around every day, all day. And some days we would make, you know, 50 pounds. Other days we would make, you know, 300 pounds. I mean, not enough to cover <laughs> rent, staff, stock, the work. I mean, it was a disaster. So, you know, six months in, we're sort of, my, sorry, I missed the part, but my boyfriend decided, Anthony, to get involved with me just as we were opening because he was looking for another job in in the mining sector in London that wasn't really happening. So I said, okay, well, while you're just at home doing nothing, why don't you come and help me with all the stuff that I struggle with? I call it the boring things like the insurance and the chill systems and the internet. I find that stuff so dull. I was like, oh, my God, someone else do it for me. <laughs> And he loves that. So perfect, perfect match. And so he did, he got involved and then he became my co-founder. We sort of, we put in equal investment in the beginning and, and you know, we still own it hundred percent. And it was always the dream to have this one, like one little cute cafe and me just be serving, you know, all for the rest of my life. And now we're six cafes in and we've got an amazing team growing. We're opening hopefully three more this year. So yeah. So, I mean, I was incredibly lucky and thank you, dad. My father is an amazing man. He's always helped all of us children with our first ventures. And I think what I was looking at before I, you know, I hate asking my parents for money. So that was a big thing for me. What I was looking for at the time as well, I remember was into different various bank loans, you know, business loans. I mean, the UK government is actually quite good at backing first time business owner, you know, people who are starting up. They were back then. So God knows what I would have done day to day because we didn't really start making money. I think we broke even in month eight, I think about. Yeah. And then after it was very quick, we sort of broke even and then it went from that to, to a lot. So we had a really amazing time where all of a sudden domino effect the cafes were just all with a queue around the corner and did it grow because of word of mouth or did you have to put in a lot of money into marketing so we were so again lucky I mean I think we opened Farm Girl at the exact right time when the Instagram food scene was taking off so it's a funny story so I we have this cute little courtyard and we had these gray tables in there and I just hated these tables. And every time I walked into the courtyard, I thought, God, this is such a waste, this horrible, gray, boring tables. And we painted our, I worked with one of my friends who's a really amazing interior designer called Beata. And she she decided that we should paint some of the the blue cubicles all pink. And back then, pink, like pink walls, pink things were not a thing. Like no one had painted their walls pink yet. And we painted these cubicles pink and like a really nice dusty pink. 
And then we had all this pink paint left over and I just had this like mad moment. I started painting these gray tables pink. That was like the probably the best decision for Farm Girl because all of a sudden we had people queuing to take photos on these pink tables. And it was because, you know, Instagram was really just starting to get all those like overhead food shots, people holding lattes. We have this latte on the menu called Rose Latte, which has rose petals on it. And you can imagine back then in the first moments of like the food, coffee photos on Instagram, that was huge. So we just had people just coming from all over the world to photograph these rose lattes on a pink table. And now I look back and I'm like, what? (laughs) What the hell? Okay, so all you need is a pink table for success. And if you get a celebrity to sit at your pink table, then that really helps too. So Nigella Lawson, she found us on Instagram, regrammed one of our photos, and then she came in the following week, ordered the pancakes, paid as a normal customer, took, she got up out of her seat and took the pancakes outside to take a photo of them overhead so she could have good light and then post it on her Instagram. She didn't say anything to anyone. We just, we could see her because we obviously signed Della Lawson. She's huge. It's amazing. And because obviously then we had a load of customers coming in going, oh, we've come because Nigella Lawson posted it. So we didn't luckily have to pay for any marketing for a while. We did end up, I think, two years in, we got an external marketing team because we realized that in order to get into like events, do loads of events and be in more of those foodie magazines and stuff and work with, you know, cooler brands, we, we wanted to go down that route. It's just so hard to know when you should invest in good marketing, whether that's your time or your money, especially when it means taking money away from your business in the early days. Yeah, and the fear is, you know, you spend all your money and time for very little in return. And just keeping up with the latest social media trends can be overwhelming. But here's some advice from Jess, who has more than 150,000 Instagram followers. So clearly she's doing something right. So it definitely started organically. It started before, you know, I was on social media before influencers were a thing. And so, and and you just kind of like back in the old days of Facebook, if anyone remembers that, where you just shared things for the sake of sharing them. You know, you're like, oh, here's a photo of me going out and and I'm checking in here, you know, and I'm doing all these things. And then Instagram started and it was like, oh, this is cool. And I could share my trips to Texas before I was living here. And that resonated with a lot of people. And then there's definitely been a shift and there continues to be these big sort of title shifts as new social media develops as well. TikTok coming on board, like killed the static photo and everyone had to move to Reels format. So you feel these big kind of time shifts of where social media has evolved. And there was never initially a plan to be like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to grow really big and I'm going to be an influencer. It was more organic than that. And then I swung all the way around to being like overly cautious with my posts. I wasn't in any of them because I was like, I just want people to respect me for my food, so I'm not going to be in any of them. And then I realized that, you know, I was overthinking things. It's my account. It's my personality. Anyone can post a picture of a steak. And recently, I, you know, probably within the last six to 12 months, I've changed up my style again where I've started to do a lot of meat meat busting videos and a lot of videos that really have my personality in them, whereas before, you know, it was more of an old school approach of oh don't don't put too much flavor in there otherwise you know because you just had to be sort of commercially 
friendly, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, don't swear, don't don't have a sense of humor, none of that. And that's really changed for me because anyone that knows me and has had a beer with me knows that I I love taking the piss. I love having, you know, I swear a lot. <laughs> and I think being authentic always goes further ultimately. Yeah, I love that. And I think people can get really caught up and lost in following a trend or if it's their social media page, it's your social media page, it sometimes bugs me a little bit when they put out a questionnaire like, oh, what do you want to see on my page? No, you just post what you want to post on your page and if people want to follow, they'll follow and there's going to be people who don't want to follow, but that's okay. In the end, there becomes this intense pressure to create content the machine, like I remember the days where we used to post once a week and that was sufficient. Now <laughs> if you're not posting once a day, if not several times a day, you're out, right? And you do get caught up in this monstrous machine to just produce, 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 and that's even harder when you don't like what you're doing. Yeah, 100% agree. So where else do you see your business growing to? Well, Hardcore Carnival, we always try and bring new products to the line We've got a new product coming out in two weeks. We always try to introduce new seasoning, flavors, and that sort of ticks on by itself. New merch, new hats, always new fun stuff like that. And for me, I just, I really enjoyed becoming so industry adjacent, focusing more on the meat, how it's produced, how to best cook it, the science behind it, not merely, you know, the barbecue aspect or the cooking aspect. It's opened up a whole new world. I get to go to conferences like ranches and cattlemen and feedlot. And I was in Dolby in Queensland for the Australian Feedlot Association. I've been to Beef Australia and Rocky. Those sort of opportunities are now more meaningful to me because I think that they also serve as a reminder to me of how far I've come, that I came from a suburban, urban Melbourneite to now be invited to speak at industry conferences because of what I've taken the time to learn and been passionate about and get to speak to the people that take the time to make this product. It's very, very special to me and I hope to continue to be able to do more of that. So what can we learn from these two women who have raised the bar for themselves and actually exceeded it? Rose, who also has a heap of followers online, I think she's up to 95,000 on Instagram. She says success is all about perseverance and a dose of obsession. I think success is, well, there's perseverance, it's hard work, but it's also attention to detail and obsessing over things can be an amazing quality, but also be patient with yourself. I think we put so much pressure on ourselves already with all these things in society, you know, looking good, fitting in, all like all these things and you obsess over them. So you try and shift your energy into obsessing over what you are obsessed with. I mean, you just got to keep going. I think take advice. I found it really hard to take advice in the beginning. I was so stubborn and stuck in my ways, but some of that advice really, really saved me. I think anything is possible. Anything is possible when you can put your mind to it. And I think you've just got to find ways to overcome fear because the minute you start doubting yourself, it's such a stumbling block fear. When you can learn how to deal with rejection, you're fine. <laughs> Just, you're fine. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I've been rejected many, many times in many things still today, you know, in some things that we, you know, I, my dream site come up, came up the other day and, you know, we fought for it for months and we didn't get it. 
you know, whatever, it is what it is. You know, we had a big investor the other day who, you know, and we had this whole plan with him and it all fell through, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's fine. We, we'll find another way. So we're not worried. I guess the last piece of advice is also don't be afraid to reach out and connect to people. When I was starting out and got curious to learn more about beef breeds and, and the ag side of things, I connected with a lot of, especially women on Twitter who were in the industry in Australia, and they were so generous to share what they were doing. There's a lot of great people that you can connect with. So always remember to grow your network and not from a superficial, like, what can they do for me perspective, but it's just, it's always a good idea to connect with people and see how they can help you and how you can help them, because I feel like that ultimately pays off in dividends. That's it for another episode of Ducks on the Pond. Thank you to our guest, Rose Hood, the founder of Farm Girl Cafes in the UK and Jess Pryle of the Hardcore Carnivore in the US. Look them up on social media. They both have really interesting Instagram sites. And don't forget they're Aussie women as well. You know, we've all started somewhere and look at what they've achieved. We've also got Instagram, person, and what are we reaching yeah. at? Just over a 1,000 followers? But look, <laughs> um, so you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend. And finally, thank you for listening. We've had a few audio recording issues this time, which is really just the reality of internet connections when we all live in the country. So thank you for your understanding. But before we go, let's meet Sarah Duncanson, co-founder of Peds Education, who has sponsored this episode. And if you'd like to get your brand out there and you're a rural woman, then let us know we have sponsorship and collaboration opportunities. All the information is in the show notes. Here's Sarah. PEDS stands for Paediatric Assessment and Education Specialists. And at PEDS, we have a vision to empower every carer with the knowledge and skills to adequately and confidently manage accidents, injury, and inevitable illness in our little ones. So we're basically a one-stop shop for paediatric education, spanning community education, medical education, and schools and businesses. So what first inspired you to create PEDS Education? Yeah, so both Grace and I, the co-founders of PEDS, grew up in the country, but we moved to the city to work in a large paediatric hospital where we have spent the last three decades combined working predominantly in the paediatric intensive care unit. And it's where we still work, but we live in the country now on farms with seven small children between us. We are literally living and breathing this every second, minute, hour, day of our lives. So along with working in the intensive care unit where we have cared for countless trauma-related accidents, we've both worked extensively in retrieval where we take critical children from regional and rural areas to the city to receive more definitive care. Some of these kids are admitted for severe trauma, others because they deteriorated quickly from severe illness and some could have been detected earlier. Others were in centres where the providers didn't have the resources to care for these kids. And our hearts were really heavy knowing that we could do something more. So there's three main areas we cover at PEDS. One, we bridge the immediate caregiver knowledge gap, and that's through our baby and child first aid courses and our nationally recognised first aid training for schools and businesses, as well as childcare and kinders. Secondly, we teach with large nursing organisations in the city, but at these courses, only one or two regional nurses can actually come along because of staffing and finance. 
And they learn in foreign environments that are not like theirs at all. So we bridge the healthcare provider knowledge gap um, by going out to regional and rural areas and creating a customised paediatric education program for their staff. And then finally, we know with medical advances, we're really good at keeping little kids alive who would otherwise not have. And where we fail these, these children miserably, the ones with complex medical needs, is in the discharge process. So caregivers, whether parents or carers, are left to fill those gaps in regional and rural areas, and they have little specialised support. So we bridge that knowledge and skill gap in carers of children with complex medical needs. Why is it so important or why is this a gap that really needs to be addressed when it comes to children's safety on farm and, and injuries? Yeah, because we know that children in regional and rural areas are almost two and a half times more likely to die than their metro counterparts. We also know that the types of accidents that happen in regional and rural areas are different from those in the metro areas. Is the idea of, well, just don't take your kids on farm feasible? No, absolutely not. We live on our farms ourselves and they're is something really special about having your family involved in in uh, being on farm. And uh, there's no way that we want to stop that. We are not about wrapping your children up in cotton wool. That is not the approach that we take. We are all about prevention of these accidents. And there's lots of things, really simple things that we can do to prevent injury. So putting your, your business cap on now, what's your best business advice for other rural women who are growing a business? So look, we haven't been in business for a huge amount of time, but certainly in the short amount of time we have been in it, we have learned so many things. And one big thing for us is imposter syndrome is very real and very debilitating. It can prevent you from reaching your true potential, but it's also fueled by non-believers in you and in what you are doing and people maybe who have a bit of tall poppy syndrome. So We would encourage people to find a business coach or a mentor who can help you work through this and keep going back to your skill set, who you are, why it is that you're needed in the industry you're in, or why it is that you're passionate about what you are doing. So we're still on this road to discovery. We're really good at keeping each other accountable and and our mental health in check in business. And I think that's really important. And we're learning more and more every single day, but certainly be confident with who you are and be passionate about what you're trying to achieve. Great advice. Um, Finally, how can people get in touch or find out more about what you do? Yeah, so a couple of different ways. You can head to our website at www.peds.education and PEDS is P-A-E-D-S. You can also follow us on social media and we provide loads of free information and bite-sized snippets of education on our social platforms. And we've just started a monthly newsletter so you can sign up and receive special offers, pre-course date reveals um, and other freebies as well. And you can do this on our website or social media channels. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. 